Thanks, Natalie. Uh, good morning. I want to add my welcome to Ryan's. My name's Rowan, one of the pastors here at EV. Uh, and this is an amazing part of God's Word, amazing part to come along to, because it's an amazing shift in the history of the way God has worked. So it's something I'm looking forward to unpacking uh, a little later as we work through this now together. Uh, if you've got young children, again, we want to apologize that the, the live stream isn't as uh, quiet as it would have been. The school, again, had some things they couldn't get out of the library. And so, again, that was one of the frustrations of sharing uh, a venue, which we're super thankful for, but also love you to keep praying that God would provide uh, a new venue for us. Uh, we're currently looking at one at the moment. Uh, it's probably going to be a lease option. But if you could be praying for that, that'd be fantastic. Uh, there's something coming up that, that, that looks quite good. If you've got contacts that are builders, electricians, and plumbers, come and talk to me afterwards. I uh, would love to have a chat. Why don't we pray that God would help us as we see this change in history? Let's pray. Lord, we come here today with so many things going on in the world around us and in our lives. For many of us, there have been uh, weeks of exciting things that have happened and joy, and for others of us, weeks of sadness and hurt. We ask that as we come to this part of your word today, that by your Spirit, we would see what you were doing in your world. We'd see how amazing it is. And we'd see how we get to hear from you and you walk alongside us. So by your Spirit, through your Word this morning, take us and fix our eyes on what you were doing and help us to live in response to that. Amen. One of the defining characteristics of well, any religion, really, but particularly Christianity, is the claim that there is more to life than this natural world. What do you think about the supernatural? Things that happen that are just kind of out of this world. What, what do you think about them? About miracles, visions, dreams, interactions with beings that seem to know more or see more and do more than any natural person. What do you, what do you think about that? See, if I'm honest, at first thought, I'm, I'm pretty sceptical. I'm like, yeah, is, is the supernatural there? It kind of feels like a movie. Uh, like some sort of Marvel movie. There's this guy in Marvel. His name's Thor. Have you seen him? Like, does anyone think Thor's real? Show of hands. Great. Otherwise, we might have to have a little chat later on. But to think that he really is this godlike figure would kind of be like crazy, wouldn't it? To believe that he's real. Yet 84% of the world's population are affiliated with some religion, which means they think that there's something more out there than the natural world. When you come to New Zealand, you find that, that figure of people who are affiliated with some sort of religious view, that there's more than just the natural world, that there's a supernatural. We find that figure drops. The 2018 census, 49% of this country ticked there is no religion. This is it. What we see, hear and feel today is all there is. 49% of this country. What do you make of the miraculous? Or perhaps the lack of it? I remember when uh, I was in year three, I was about eight years old in primary school, and we had a Bible in schools teacher telling us about this amazing miracle that had happened to her friend. It was my first kind of interaction with the miraculous. Uh, she was saying that her friend was going uh, caravanning with her family, driving along in her car with a caravan behind, uh, when for some reason they found themselves on the wrong side of the road and an oncoming car coming the other way. She said her friend just shut her eyes and then nothing happened. And as she opened her eyes, she felt the car being put back onto the ground. And actually something had happened and lifted the car and caravan and gone over the one that was in front and that God had saved her. That, that was my first interaction with the miraculous. And I was like, really? Like, I don't know. It could happen, I guess. 
But I've never seen anything like it. And I don't know what you have seen. But we come along and often we doubt the miraculous. Yet there have been events that have claimed to be witnessed by hundreds and hundreds of people throughout human history that have changed the course of history. Things that are out of this world, things that don't seem normal, that seem supernatural. I mean, the obvious one is the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. So many claim to have seen him and have radically changed their lives believing that he was God. They died for their belief. Not just the one or two People who believed it spread across the whole world. They believed that he rose from the dead. Not because they just liked to think it happened, because they claimed they saw him. You know, according to our last census, 39% of this country still identify with Christianity in some way. 39% still think there's something to this. It can't be totally loopy, can it? And when you start to think about it, I think all of us have a sense that there is something more to this life than just what we see and feel. The idea of a spiritual realm, a sense that there's more to humanity than just what meets the eye. We're more than just flesh and blood. There's some concept of a soul. There's more than just flesh and blood going on with each of us. And we believe that in some ways, don't we? There's something going on. And and maybe that there's something after death. What do you do with the miraculous? For some, there are come along, they come along, and I call them miracle junkies. They're people that like seek out miracles. I want to see this amazing new thing. We look for the supernatural everywhere. You see it in some forms of, of Christianity, looking for supernatural power. Not, not the power like Thor, but, but of knowledge. I want to be able to know amazing things that I've never known about someone else before. Or healing, amazing healing that can happen and powers they can have. And as we reach Acts chapter 2 this week, we find one of the most miraculous stages in human history explained for us. No matter what your take on the Bible is today, no matter what your take on the possibility of the supernatural, what we have in front of us is an ancient first century document. The book of Acts, collected by a doctor, where you'll find no ancient historian in the world disagrees that it's a first century document. They they agree that it has a good view of what was going on in the first century. And they claim that something crazy went on. History claims that something went on this day, the day of Pentecost. But here's the thing. It didn't just happen in a vacuum. It didn't just come out of the blue when we came along to these events. We're going to see today that the real marvel with the miraculous is not actually the miraculous, but what the miraculous points to. So come with me, point number one, the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost. In Acts 2, chapter 1, sorry, Acts chapter 2, verse 1, something happens like nothing we've ever seen before or we'll hear of again. We kind of heard the story of what went on as Natalie read it for us, that the followers of Jesus are gathered in a room somewhere in Jerusalem. They've just seen their leader die, but then rise and then spend 40 days with them and then ascend in the clouds. You can imagine they'd be a bit confused, a bit, what is going on? What is this like? They're kind of there together waiting for this, this promise because Jesus had promised he would give them power within a few days. He would baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And we're told it was the Feast of Pentecost. Now, this is important. You see, Pentecost was a feast that was tied to the Passover. 
So the Passover was this celebration of the way that God passed over the houses of those who wiped blood over their door frames back in Exodus, uh, saying that they ought to die, but this land that they killed, they, they wiped the blood on the door frame, and that meant that God would pass over, not uh, enacting His justice on people. And so they celebrate that God did that. He saved them. And what Pentecost was, was a, was a festival that was linked to Passover. It basically happened a month after Passover, somewhere around the 40-day mark. Uh, where, where they would celebrate the, the, the harvest of the barley and celebrate what had given them, what God had given them, before they then went on and, and then planted their wheat. It was this great celebration of what God had done in saving them through, Pentecost, through um, the Passover and then the, the goodness that He'd given them. So these people were there following Jesus, but just waiting. And then this event happens. And can you imagine it? Can you imagine being there at that moment as, as this thing happens, scared, cooped up, feeling like failures? Look with me at verse 2. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying. They saw tongues like flames of fire that separated and rested on each of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, I've got to be honest here as well. If that happened to me, I'd be freaked out. Like, is my hair going to catch on fire? Like, what is happening as these flames are above someone's head? You can kind of imagine it like this, right? Is it on? Yeah, it is. Woo! Except it's real fire. I was going to do it with real fire, but I don't trust myself. Now, if I was there, it would have freaked me out, not only because there's these flames there, but, well, for me, because I'd be speaking another language. Now, that's a miracle. <laughs> like, I spent four years studying Greek, and I'm still not very good at it. Right? I'm just not great at languages. But these guys seem to have this moment happen, and then are speaking in a different language. The wind, the noise of the wind, this, the flames of fire. Well, what do we do with this? I mean, do we read this and go, I expect this to happen tonight when we get home? Or in small groups? What do we do with what is going on? See, there are some that come along and they define themselves as, as Christians or as people by this experience, like the Pentecostal church. Pentecostal church is named after this day that says we expect the events of Luke and Acts that went on in the first century to be happening today in the same way. And so that would say we really want to see this power of the Spirit coming and we want to be praying that God would be giving people tongues and that's, that's one of their key focuses. And then you've got the charismatic church that say, well, the gifts that came along with this, uh, they're for us today in all of them, and we should see that happening. And, and then others come along and they go, look, this is just a fairy tale. <laughs> I actually don't believe it. Maybe it's uh, just, just a kind of a myth that helps us to understand something about God. And then still others come along and go, well, I think it happened, but it doesn't have any ramification for me today. What does it all mean? Well, this morning I want to take us deep to help us to understand what these events are about because it's the start of something amazing. It really is. But in order to understand it, we're going to need to go back in history. We're going to need to see where a whole heap of different roads come colliding together because this is the best news ever. What happened on that day at Pentecost is what the Jews had been waiting for since Moses in the time of Numbers 11. And this kind of picture of flames on, on, on the head, it's something that we start to see even coming from Moses. Remember when God first met Moses at the burning bush that wasn't burning? The bush that didn't burn but was on fire? That one, right? I don't know why it's called the burning bush. It didn't burn. But anyway, 
Moses met God, and he's there, and his presence is symbolized by fire. As Moses takes um, Israel out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, uh, and then into the the promised land, not not quite, but almost, um, God is with him in a pillar of fire by night. There's something about this like fire symbol that's here, that happens, that symbolizes the presence of God himself. The wind is like the breath of God, breathing out what he promised, what Israel longed for. It was like God lit up the next stage of his plan for the world that includes you and me. Come with me, Acts chapter 2, verse 6. When the sound occurred, a crowd came together and was confused because each one heard them speaking in his own language. They were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear them in our own native language? People had come for the celebration of the Passover and Pentecost, and they'd come from all over the ancient Near East. They spoke different languages from those areas because they'd been scattered for so long, but they came together and heard them speaking in their own dialects. They heard them saying what they were saying in their own language. Now, that's normally where our fascination focuses. When we hear this section here, we're kind of like, wow, that's the miracle. Tongues, and you hear the church being excited about tongues and the power that tongues bring and how cool would it be for that to be the case here. But like all miracles, it's so easy to get caught up on the miracle and miss what it means. We get caught up on the miracle and miss what it means because the focus here isn't the languages, but the content of what is being said. Verse 11, we hear them declaring the magnificent acts of God in our own tongues. What the apostles were doing at this point was speaking of the magnificent acts of God. Do you see the contrast? This scared group of people in a room waiting, what is going on? Peter, he couldn't even speak as Jesus is on the cross and someone says, do you know him? Three times he denies before the rooster crows. Now standing in front of what was probably the the temple forecourts, As he speaks to the world, to those that are around, standing up, declaring the magnificent acts of God. That was his focus. The acts of God, what God had been doing throughout human history. And the focus was on the life, death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And that, that lit up the rest of the world, even till today. But it's important to notice That even at this miraculous event where God pours out his spirit and these flames are above them, they're speaking different languages and there's this wind noise, it's like big splash that's shown into the stage of history. Not everyone believed. You know, sometimes people say, look, if we had more miracles today, then people would believe. They'd come and they'd trust Jesus if there was more miraculous going on. Well, at this point, when the most miraculous is happening, there's still a mixed response to the news of Jesus. The miraculous does not guarantee change. Some just sneer. They're drunk. That's the problem. They they write their own narrative. They twist what's going on and they, they reject it. The presence of a miracle never necessitates the certainty of belief. Do you hear that? The presence of a miracle never necessitates the certainty of belief. Here, the miracles were not enough. The miracles happen and people are saying, what's going on? What does this mean? And so then Peter, 
stands and gets to explain what is going on. Well, we get to point number two, the meaning of the miracle. The meaning of the miracle. The man who'd been too scared to even associate with Jesus now says these words in verse 14. Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. See, this day was the culmination of what God had been promising he would do over the last 1,500 years. Have you ever been waiting for a promise? Have you ever been in one of those situations where someone has promised you something and you're waiting for it? You know it's coming and you really want it to happen and to be there and you're like, ah, come on, I really want this to work. So many promises for me as a child growing up of of a Christmas present or or, or whatever it was that would happen. My my license when I could have freedom finally and drive a car. It just takes so long and you're waiting, but when the day comes, it's like just excitement if you pass your license test, (laughs) like I did the second time. You're like, this is great. This is amazing. The day has come. Well, that is what is happening here. This was the day that God came to us. But more than just coming to us, he came in us to be with with us. This is the day Moses was longing for. Way back in Numbers 11, Moses had been looking forward to the day when God would pour out his spirit on all people. See, in Numbers 11, the people of God were complaining that they're there, they want to eat, they've been brought out of Egypt, and there's no food. The food isn't there. They've got this bread called manna, and what is that? It wasn't enough. And so they complained to Moses, all the people of Israel, we want fish and cucumbers and the leeks and the melons that we had when we're back in Egypt under slavery. But yeah, we love the food. So funny how we're driven by our stomachs so often, isn't it? The people, family after family, our numbers tells us, would come to Moses' tent weeping. Give us what we had when we were in slavery. Take us back. Take us back. And the burden of Moses dealing with family after family after family after family after family after family of these people whinging and whining about, we want real food, not this bread junk, became too much for him. In verse 14 of Numbers 11, he literally says to God, I can't carry all these people anymore. I'm dying here. I'm crushing. They're coming to me. If this is going to keep happening, if they're going to whinge this much and keep coming to me, he says to God, kill me now. Take me now. If you're a parent, you understand what he feels like at that point. Stop asking for food. (laughs) So God tells him in his graciousness, to take 70 of the elders from among Israel. And that God will then take some of the Spirit of God, which he'd placed on Moses to be able to lead God's people. He would take some of that Spirit of God and and put it on the other 70 men. Look at Numbers 11, verse 25. The Lord then descended in the cloud and spoke to him. He took some of the Spirit that was on Moses and placed the Spirit on the 70 elders. As the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they never did it again. See, up until this point, God had only ever given his spirit to the leaders of God's people, to Moses, to lead God's people. He gives his spirit to a guy by the name of Bezalel to lead the work of constructing the tent God would dwell in, and for that purpose. But that was it. Throughout the scriptures, as we look, we keep seeing that it was only the leaders of God's people who were given the spirit, not the people. 
Joshua after Moses. Each of the judges were given the Spirit. Uh, God's Spirit would descend on the judge so that they could rescue Israel from their stupidity in the particular issue they were in and then lead them for the time of the life of the judge. The judge would die. Israel would reject God again. God would raise up a judge, place His Spirit on them to lead them out. Uh, You see it with King Saul, the king that the people wanted. He's given the Spirit of the Lord. There's this brief moment where where God pours out His Spirit on all Saul's agents that were trying to kill David, who God had chosen to be the next leader, and Saul's agents are trying to kill him. So God just places His Spirit on all of them in 1 Samuel 19, and they start prophesying. And then they start acting in line with God's plan, and then they help make David king. But He does it for a time. And then He places His Spirit on King David. Interestingly, the last words King David says in his last song in 2 Samuel 23, this is what he says on the screen. These are the last words of David. The declaration of David, son of Jesse. The declaration of the man raised on high, the one anointed by the God of Jacob. This is the most delightful of Israel's songs. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. One of the defining characteristics of the king of Israel that everyone would follow. The reason they would follow this king was because God had anointed them by placing his spirit on them. And he is saying, I'm there with you, leading you, guiding you. So you might know my word and my plan, that you might live my way. And that king was to lead the people. So in Psalm 51, when David asked God not to banish him from his presence or take his spirit from him, He's not saying for us today that God might take his spirit from us like, oh, have I got it, have I not? He's saying, even though I've greatly sinned with Bathsheba, even though I've, I've killed her husband Uriah, don't remove me as the leader of your people. Please stay with me. Please help me to lead your people. Do not take your spirit from me. I want the closeness of working with you, of you working through me, of me knowing you and your plans and purposes intimately. Please, Lord, stay with me. Help me to lead your people. I'm sorry. Forgive me and cleanse me. That's what it's about. Throughout all Israel's history, what signified the leader of God's people was when the Spirit of God was on them, leading them, so that they might know God's Word and have God dwell with them. In fact, that's why in Isaiah 11 that we just looked at our last term, it speaks that the promised king is from the line of Jesse. And what does it say? 11 verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. I'm trying to hammer home this point. The Spirit of the Lord comes to the leader of God's people. And that is how he leads, by knowing what to do and how to do it. Because God speaks through him. But in Numbers 11, this odd thing happens. Where God gives the Spirit to the 70 elders. But what happens is he says, come up to this tent and I'll share the spirit I've given to Moses with the 70 elders. But only 68 elders go. I don't know, there's two that slept in that day. They're at home. You're like, oh, what a day to miss out. You're about to get the spirit of God and you sleep in. You're like, no. So good on you for coming to church today and learning on this. I'm not saying that you don't get this. Yeah, there's a whole heap of wrongness in that. (laughs) They sleep in and they're not there. But then what happens is, even though they're not there, They still have the Spirit of God because people report, they're prophesying, they're speaking of what God is doing and how to go forward um, in the the village. And these people see them and they complain to Joshua, Joshua, son of Nun, who's the guy that follows on from Moses, um, most awkwardly named last name. I didn't think nuns could have kids, but that was funnier. (laughs) 
And they come to Joshua and they say, quick, tell Moses. So Joshua goes to Moses and goes, these guys are prophesying. You know, they're, they're not authenticated. Their unauthorized spirit giving has gone on. They weren't in the tent. They shouldn't have it. Why are they speaking? Stop it. And Moses utters this line that gives a hint of the longing of the rest of the Bible. Numbers eleven twenty nine. Moses asked Joshua, are you jealous on my account? If only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit on them. Moses is like, if only everyone could know God like I know him now and know his word and his plans and his will, that you would live the right way and I wouldn't have to put up with all this coming backwards and forwards, but also you'd know how to live. You wouldn't do dumb stuff like golden calves and all sorts of stupidity that's happening. If only you had the Spirit of God on you. So the problem with Israel is actually the problem with humanity. All of us left to our own devices are crooked and broken. We don't treat God as God. We, we live our own way. We have hearts that turn away from God that are actively saying, look, I think I don't need God. That's what we're like on our own. We veer off the road. We go off all sorts of shonky paths. And we need, we need correction. We need God's word. In Deuteronomy 5, Moses says, If only they had such a heart to fear me and keep all my commands, or God says to them through Moses, so that they and their children would prosper forever. And so the desire of the Old Testament from these points on is that God's Spirit would come and live with His people. By the time we get to Jeremiah, we hear of God's promise to fix our hearts, that God will give us new hearts. And then all these ideas of a new heart and God's Spirit in us come together in two promises. One is Joel 2 that Peter uses here, and the other is Ezekiel 36. So let's have a look at Ezekiel 36. And if you've got your own Bible here, highlight this passage. Ezekiel 36, 24, super, super important. Ezekiel 36, 24. God says, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and will bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean, forgiven. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Oh, how good it would be if God would help my heart to live His way, to live the right way, rather than the own crooked way I keep ending up in. Verse 27, I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You'll live in the land that I gave your fathers. You'll be my people and I will be your God. Do you see it? Forgiveness, wiped clean, new heart, life that lives forever long in the land. And I get to be, they get to be the people of God and He is their, their God. There's a proximity, a closeness about it. Friends, through Ezekiel, God is promising to fix His people's hearts, to give His people His spirit. So we'd be cleansed, forgiven and live His way and know God intimately like Moses did, like David did. Then Ezekiel describes what it'll be like in chapter 37, which is one of the weirdest chapters of the Bible. It's this valley of dry bones just lying there, bones that are dry as. And he gets told, uh, God tells Ezekiel to prophesy and breathe over them. And then he breathes over them and all these bones come to life and get flesh on them. You're like, what is that? This is what it is when God brings people back from the dead. See, our hearts are so hard and callous that we're pretty much the living dead. 
We're a valley of dry bones without God. Our future is death and judgment and hell because we rejected the true and living God. But the promise of God through Ezekiel is that he will give us new hearts and bring us back to life. Resurrection. Forgiveness. Spirit being poured out. Relationship with God and resurrection where life will last forever. All come together in two events. The Passover and Pentecost. And we see these kind of narratives come together so clearly. This is why it happened at Pentecost. Because Pentecost was always linked to the Passover. It's a festival that's celebrate where God gave that sacrificial lamb. And then about a month later, they'd celebrate the blessings that they've been given. And they were linked together. It was on the eve of Passover that Jesus died. And one month later, at the festival that was always tied to the Passover, Pentecost... God pours out his spirit and all the promises, the the longings of Moses from Numbers 11, the promises of of a new heart that would come through Jeremiah and through Ezekiel 36 and 37 and resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus and the pouring out of the spirit all come together in this one moment. And that is God being present by his spirit in the lives of people. New life, relationship with God. The day of Pentecost is not about speaking in other languages. It's about the promises of God coming together, that God is with his people, in his people, in the way that Moses longed. He'll be with all all people. We now have that possibility. A couple of years ago, I I did a a walk, a tramp, on the Rootburn Track and the Greenstone Track in Queenstown. Uh, it's this great part of God's creation and of this country that I, just, I really love. Five days, just my backpack and me. I decided it'd be good just to have a break and to go out in the wild on my own. And so I did it on my own, which is a bit crazy for an extrovert like me. I worked that out about five minutes in. <laughs> so I didn't see anyone. But literally, I actually, actually got quite lonely as I'm walking this track. It was five days, about 80 kilometers, um, 1,900 meters of altitude crossing as we went across it. And I was like... And I'm actually really lonely. Now, I met some people, not many. Some of them were super weird. Uh, some of them were great. But it was just like, man, this is... And I think for me, as someone who's been married, been married 18 years, in fact, Sarah and I have been together longer than we've been apart. So we started dating when we were 16. And so we've been together as a couple in life more than we've been apart. And I think I just started missing her, right? And you're like, no. <laughs> no, I just... How do I get my word count in? You know, how do I have someone who's there to be able to understand what I'm thinking about? I say, it's okay, just keep walking. Or, or for me to encourage her. And it was a sense where I was just lonely and felt like, oh, I've just missed her being with me. I don't mind being apart. Often we've been apart different places, but we can contact one another. But without, I, was, I had no reception. There was no way of calling her. I literally, there's nothing I could do. I could try a smoke thing, but it wouldn't even work, right? Now, the moment I walked off the Rootburn track five days later, the moment I got reception, I called Sarah. And it was like this great moment of, ah, oh, I get to hear your voice again. I'm alive. Because she didn't know what was happening, where I was. Well, she knew I was there. But, um, and there's this sense where, you know, there's this closeness of being like, ah, oh, I can hear you now. And I'm back. And our relationship is kind of back together. Not that it was apart, but we were. Now, Sarah certainly isn't God. But... It gives a dim reflection of what it's like to have God with us. 
that reality of God in our lives, knowing our thoughts and, and us being able to understand His plans and purposes. There's moments when God's Word comes alive by the work of the Spirit to go, remember whose you are. Remember what your future is. Yes. Israel had not had that ever, except for the kings. And now on the day of Pentecost, God was pouring out His Spirit into these apostles to proclaim the big picture. And they had been taught it, and now they had the Spirit in them, God with them, knowing Him and Him knowing them. And so they boldly proclaim, guess what? Now is the age of the Spirit. And so Peter in Acts 2 turns the promise, turns to the promise God gave through the prophet Joel to explain what happened. Acts 2.16 standing up. This is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. What you're seeing, right? It was what he was pointing forward to. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy that your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. I'll even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I'll display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire, a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All people having that closeness of relationship with God who made them and sustains them. Those who've come to Him knowing His plans and purposes as given through His Word, as God comes to us by His Spirit. The forgiveness of our brokenness, like Ezekiel 36, a new heart that's inclined towards living His way. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, saved from death and judgment and hell, given new life, resurrection life. Peter's over the moon. He's like, have you seen this? It's now. God is giving His Spirit Everything that he's promised is being fulfilled, and it's all about Jesus. See how the events of the cross and resurrection, the thing that the Pentecost was fulfilled by, are now molded together on the day of Pentecost into one. The wonders, the signs, is talking about the life of Jesus, wonders being done on earth. The sun turning to darkness and the moon to blood is the death of Jesus as the earth goes dark. And Passover and Pentecost are pulled together by the pouring out of the Spirit where the Passover lamb brings forgiveness to all by the work of God dwelling with us. That's why Peter explains what happened to Jesus. That's what he does. And by the way, way that the utterances, people sometimes say the utterances that were spoken were these special tongues that people heard in other languages. The same word is used of when Peter speaks clearly here at this point and, and explains what Jesus did. So it's not a special type of speaking, it's speaking around Jesus. Look at Acts 2.22. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. What Joel said is now promised and coming here through what Jesus has done. It's not about speaking in tongues. It's about the pouring out of God's Spirit on all who call on the name of the Lord so they will know him. It's about the resurrection it's available to all who come to Him. It's about the beginning of a new age, the last days. That's why verses 24 to 35 are all about the resurrection of Jesus. All of this focuses on the identity of Jesus. The Spirit's role is to point people to who Jesus is and what He's done and to see how what God has been doing throughout human history all comes together in the one who is the promised King who died for us.
Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's the promised king, the suffering servant, the king who will rule forever from 2 Samuel 7. See, it's not about the miracle, what the miracle signifies. God with us. It's not about speaking in tongues. It's it's, it's a one-off, unrepeatable event of the Spirit being poured out for the first time for all who would come to God. It happened so that people could see it happen. That's why. It's this sign that the Spirit has come. It's not a model of what we should expect to happen for each person going forward. We don't see in the New Testament letters people saying, oh, you know, make sure they've got the Spirit too, that this extra thing happens. Now we see the two come together, people trusting in Jesus and therefore being given the Spirit. Each time in the book of Acts, when someone believes, then has a second experience of receiving the Spirit, which happens in Acts, it's a new stage of God breaking through a new barrier. Jerusalem, then to Judea and Samaria, and then the Gentiles and the end of the earth. And so what we see here, is the amazing reality of God's new stage. The fourth, the third point and the last point, the birth of the church. Acts 2.37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? I mean, you understand it, right? They're, we've killed the Messiah. <laughs> like, literally, we were the people that were crying out, like, we've killed the Messiah. And literally, they were the ones that were there and did it. And this is not a, a problem with Jews throughout all history. It's an issue of these ones right in front of him, right here. We've killed the Messiah. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. You see, they're two things together human responsibility and God's sovereign plan. You hear the news of the gospel, and what are we called to do? Repent, turn back, stop trusting yourself, stop trusting your broken, stone-cold heart to live the right way, because it's not working. And come to the God who's offering forgiveness, and trust Him, repent, turn to Him. Now what we hear is that the promise is for as many as our Lord God will call. We really make a choice to trust in Jesus, and at the same time, God is the one who draws us to Him, because we're so dead in our valley of dry bones. You know, who's ever seen a dead body say, get up? <laughs> they don't speak. No, God calls us back by His Spirit. Friends, there is far more to this world than the merely natural. There is a God and He's walked amongst us on earth. He lived and died and rose again. And He now offers us life forever, resurrection in the age to come. And He offers to send His Spirit Jesus' spirit within us until the final day of Jesus when he comes back and judges the living and the dead. It sounds far out to begin with, but it's just marked all throughout history. I don't know what you think about the supernatural world, but there's one thing you can't deny. The natural accounts of history attest to the supernatural reality of God. The events of history that really happened, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus points people to the fact that there is a God. That God had been speaking for over 1,500 years about how all these things would come together. 
that God would dwell with his people, that his spirit would be poured out, and that he would grow his church and see people leave behind their old ways of life and be united together and say, I want to see people come to know Jesus and, and, and make decisions to sacrifice, to sacrifice the present for their hope in the future, to give up their lives, to die. Because this message is so important. Because this message determines eternity. On the first day the Spirit was poured out, on the day of Pentecost, the church was born. Over 3,000 people turned from their rebellion against God and accepted Jesus as their king. 3,000. As a side note, the first church was a megachurch. There were 3,000 people in the first church that gathered together on that day. And then look what they did, Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. They didn't devote themselves to miraculous speaking for visions and dreams and waiting for God to take me on a new journey. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Because why? That's how Jesus continued to do his work. The resurrected Jesus would work through the apostolic witness by the work of the Spirit. And so they, they listened to what the apostles taught because Jesus sent them out. They committed themselves to one another, to be partnering with one another in this great gospel cause. They, they sold their stuff and pulled things together and gave out of need because they weren't living for the here and now. They were living for eternity. And to see the world hear the news that Jesus is King and that He's coming back again. Friends, how great is it today to have what Moses longed we would all have, to have what David had, but to have with more clarity because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the forgiveness of God and God with us in His Spirit. How great is it to know our rebellion is forgiven? How great is it to see how the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes, as promised, all work together, that God is faithful and I'll trust Him? How does that encourage you and send you out into God's Word with boldness? How great is it to, to have the apostles' teaching here as we open up what the apostles said and to be gathered around God's Word how great is it to have brothers and sisters that we're in partnership with, supporting one another, encouraging one another, helping us to keep putting Jesus first, to keep pointing out the reality of what will happen, that this life is not all there is, that there is more than just the natural. Reminding one another of Jesus' words regarding our sin, it is finished, paid for, paid in full at the cross, forgiven. If all of that is real, if it's, if it's true for you, then that is the work of God's Spirit in you. The supernatural gift of the Spirit is seeing dead and lifeless bodies that have been marred by sin, like yours and mine, being brought to life by the Spirit of God. If you live for Jesus, if you've sacrificed pleasure now for the life to come, if you see Jesus as your King and your Lord and your Savior, and you shape your life around Him, that's the miracle. That is the supernatural, The dead people like us would surrender our lives to the true and living God. Friends, we're about to share together in the Lord's Supper, which is a great reminder of the Passover meal and Jesus' death and resurrection for us, and that he's coming back again. But today, if you're, if you're checking out the things of God and you don't yet trust in Jesus, I want to encourage you, why don't you take the bread and the grape juice that gets passed around and say, yeah, I'm in. I do trust Jesus. He is my only hope. And ask God to forgive you and give you his spirit and help you to live for him. What a great way to start with the symbol of the Passover 
and remembering together the day of Pentecost. And if you do trust Jesus, why don't you take the bread and the grape juice as a reminder that Jesus died in our place, that his death was my death. It's finished. And looking forward to the day that he comes back and asking him to help us to keep remembering Jesus' death and resurrection in our place. So why don't we pray together and thank God for the great joy it is to know him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we don't deserve you, life, anything. Our hearts are broken. Our lives are bent against you. And and we are sorry. We are sorry for the way that we don't live as we ought, just like Israel. So are we. But we are so thankful that you have poured out your spirit, that you have sent your son to die in our place, that he has risen and been seated at your right hand and has now sent your spirit to live in us to convict us and shape us and mold us and help us to understand your plans and purposes. Father, it's amazing to be caught up in this, this your plan. And we ask that as we take this grape juice and this bread and we're reminded of what Jesus did, that you'd help us to remember the reality that it's only because of what Jesus has done that we can know you and only because of your work in us that we can have a certain hope of the future. So this day, Lord, we ask, You continually work in your spirit to help us see the things of who Jesus is and what he's done. In his name we pray. Amen.